there is a lot of life science companies as uh, coming to LA and locating to LA because uh, first of all we have great hospitals and we have the most ethnically diverse population which is great for clinical trial as well. I'm Alex Bloomberg host of the podcast Startup and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised L.A., and I created We Are L.A. Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Today's We Are LA Tech episode shout out goes to Chris Miles. Chris Miles, thank you for being such a longtime member of the We Are LA Tech community and just championing everything that we do. Really appreciate you. Be sure to say hello to Chris on Twitter at Miles Next Door. That's M I L E S N E X T D O O R. Miles Next Door. Let Chris know you found him via We Are LA Tech. Welcome back to the We Are LA Tech podcast, spotlighting LA tech companies and talent. I am Dave Whalen, the CEO of Bioscience LA. It's been uh, wonderful to be a, a guest host supporting We Are LA Tech and Esprit Devora over the past uh, several weeks. Really thrilled to be connecting the dots between the greater LA tech community and the life sciences, healthcare innovation, health tech innovation ecosystem that I'm very much a part of. And uh, on that note, really thrilled to have Layla Murman on today, who is, uh, I've gotten to know over the past couple of years through through a couple of opportunities. And we're going to talk about some of the newer ones in a moment. But Layla, welcome. I would really love you to start. And you've got such an interesting life story and kind of you know international career journey. And so would love to have you tell us a bit about uh, you know who you are and kind of Go back as far as you want. Really want to hear your origin story. Thank you, Dave. Um, hello, everyone. And thank you for inviting me, Dave. Uh, I like to say I am an entrepreneur and I have been an entrepreneur for 20 years. I have to go a bit back at where I start having the passion for entrepreneurship. Actually, what led me to start my journey was my fascination with building and leading an organization. And um, as you said, I am from Tehran, Iran, and that's where my journey started. I remember I had this passion when I was in high school, and I held on to that passion despite the society discouragement as women back there uh, were mostly encouraged to dedicate their time to being a homemaker. Just to kind of, you know, touch on that for a moment, sort of, you know, if you could, I think we, you know, we all sort of have, uh, you know, heard the stories, you know, you know, seen, you know, news over the years. But, you know, if you can kind of just give us, give us a sense of sort of really what, what that environment was like and kind of how were you able to kind of a- approach this, uh, the, the world of engineering, the world of entrepreneurship in a, in a place that's not always uh, open to that for women? Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't easy. My family was uh, pro-education. That's why they let me to continue my education and get into engineering. Uh, but they were traditional and they were 
very really supportive of a woman starting a venture and working as an independent person without getting married. Uh, but you know, back there we didn't have internet. So when you don't have internet, you don't know what is happening around the world. So I thought that that's the life and that's how it should be. So I tried so hard and fought really hard uh, with tradition to get where I get that I'm going to tell you that. Uh, story and it wasn't really easy. I've been discriminated, but I didn't know better. I didn't even know that I am being discriminated. Later in life, I figured that that behavior called discrimination. Wow, so that's 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 an, just a, such an interesting perspective on uh, you know sort of go, going down this path without without fully understanding kind of the the context, um, which I feel like in some ways we you know we all sometimes it takes us years before we kind of connect the dots back to what we were working on and sort of the context. But uh, it, it sounds like having supportive parents is definitely, definitely a key part of you know, helping you move forward. So uh, yeah, I mean, were, were you, were you kind of focused on entrepreneurship and, and technology back in your high school days? Or did that kind of start, you know, once you, once you went to college? No, you know, during the high school, I was focused on studying because getting into college wasn't an easy task in Iran. We have concluded that um, many young and talented people are competing with each other to get into the school, uh, especially good schools. So I was very much focused on studying back there. And I got into the, the most prestigious, prestigious engineering school in Iran, Sharif University. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It is sort of MIT of Iran, and most of Sharif students, when they graduated, they moved to U.S. and they go to MIT. And uh, that's why Sharif is quite known in between uh, universities in the U.S. Uh, I have to tell you that back then when I get into engineering school, only a few girls get into engineering school. So I was among 10% of the students who were girls, and the rest of them were boys. So nobody took us really seriously in a school. And we were like so happy that we were there and we, they got, they gave us the chance to study in engineering school. So we didn't even talk about starting a business or something. The fact that they just accept us to be in the class was a victory for us back then. So I completed my uh, undergrad degree in chemical engineering. And, um, but when I finished, I really didn't learn anything about the basics of how I can apply my knowledge in starting and growing a business. So I, I gather up a lot of information and uh, I learned a lot, but I really, in application, I didn't learn anything. With the purpose in mind, I continued my education and during my PhD, which was a joint program between uh, Iran University of Science and Technology and Leeds University of UK. UK uh, uh, for the first time, I was introduced to application of technology uh, for solving real problem in the industry. In fact, one of those problems was the uh, basis for my supervisor to, to define my thesis. That was exactly what I was looking for. Back then, I was thinking if I could solve a problem in the area of my expertise, that can be a core that I can build a foundation upon. So it took me a PhD, Dave, to figure that out, that solving a problem in an industry <laughs> is not the business. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes it takes all that. And were, and were, you, were you traveling between uh, Leeds and Iran at the time, or was this all, like, local and just uh, with uh, remote uh, 
because my, my sense is this is but this is before uh this is before the era of zoom education for sure so uh you know did you have to go to the uk a lot yeah yeah of course way before so i was spending six months in uk and six months in iran so uh part of my thesis was going on in uk based on the equipment they have in the lab we didn't have those equipment back in uh, iran and part of it like programming because uh, what I was doing was optimizing a waste management technique using machine learning. So building the algorithm uh, was back at home and running the experiments was back in uh, the UK Leeds University. Wow. And so that's uh, so machine learning for uh, for waste management. So this was even I'm going to say, you know, we talked about this being before the era of Zoom education. I'm going to say it was also it was also before everyone was talking about AI and machine learning, which, of course, you know, everyone is talking about all the time today. So how did you how did you kind of go from chemical engineering to uh, to, you know, machine learning and AI? To be honest uh, with you, Dave, I, I chose chemical engineering without knowing actually what I'm getting myself into. I loved chemistry and I thought that, OK, this is related to chemistry. But when I get into the school, I figured that it has nothing to do with chemistry and everything to do with designing a process and designing equipment and getting involved in control, instrumentation and optimization of different process. So what I fell in love with it because it gave me a very good perspective to look at uh, equipment process from high level of managing it, designing it, putting together and create a feasible process production process for chemicals, for pharma industry, for food industry, for any industry that involves multiple equipment interacting with each other to do something. So um, that was that's under actually chemical engineering to, to optimize process, designing new process, coming up with the uh, sort of a new design for equipment to produce something new. So it was within what I was doing back then in chemical engineering, I can say that uh, I was a chemical engineering is studying more in process engineering and control and then get to the bioprocess later in life. Got it. Uh, that's, that's real. That's really interesting. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I guess I, I did, I did study AI in college. Uh, I was not an engineer, um, but, you know, took a couple of engineering classes along the way. And I, I do think there is that kind of common, common linkage of, you know, of understanding, you know, understanding systems and processes. And, you know, to some extent that transcends just the, you know, whether it's chemical or, you know, industrial or mechanical or whatever, ultimately it's, you know, how do you, how do you go about designing systems to solve a problem? Yeah, that's true. And um, yeah, as you said, you know, machine learning was a new concept back then. So I was so excited to use all of these experimental data to create an algorithm that be able to predict the, predict the optimum operating condition for our waste management process that we were designing. So it was really interesting and opened a lot of door for me to understand the connection between the machine learning and AI world with the real industrial devices and processes and how it can use for a better process at the end of the line. You know, during that time uh, uh, that I was doing my thesis, I met the CEO of a, a German company because I needed some instrumentation for my testing rig. 
they were developing a new technology for measurement uh, of different uh, parameters in high pressure, high temperature uh, processes. I thought that uh, if I could integrate uh, what I'm doing in the software section with what they were doing, that would be a very good solution with the industry that I was involved with. And that could save them money and bring value for them in the long run. So I talked to him and I told him my idea and he was very supportive. That's the uh, time that I started reaching out to um, people in that industry back in Iran, introducing uh, the technology. But because I really didn't have any guideline, what I was doing was explaining my fascination with the technology. So they didn't find it really interesting because I was just sharing them why I'm so fascinated about this technology. Gradually in time, in a hard way always, I learned that I have to talk about the value this technology brings for them and how what are the advantages of this technology in terms of if it's implemented in their system uh, for their process. This is foreshadowing from, uh, uh, you know, how do you evolve from an engineer to a uh, engineering leader to, you know, to a to a CEO of a company and, you know, understand the markets. But uh, so you're, you're kind of, you know, getting ahead of, you know, getting ahead of yourself as you start to realize what it takes for people to adapt technology. Oh, yeah. You have no idea. Always I learn everything in the hard way. So finally, I could convince them, you know, I learned how to how to present, I learned how to present the value. I could convince them to uh, actually this, uh, about the value of this technology, but it took more time for them to overcome their skepticism uh, in regard working with a young woman in a male dominant uh, industry. You know, basically uh, the, the only women working in those industries were uh, secretaries or uh, in a job that has nothing to do with engineering. So finally, I land my first project. That was the start of my company. I was moving forward, but um, I didn't know that I have to be always connected with the market and with my client's need. I learned that again in the hard way that I have to be flexible enough and always working on the value I'm proposing to be on top of market, especially in Iran because of the, all the fluctuation that we experience. Uh, working on their political um, economy. So gradually, uh, the market and the market need uh, let the company grow and evolve into a product development engineering firm with the expertise to diagnose problems with the devices and processes and help the client find the solution by bundling technology or developing the solution for them. Also, gradually in time, we start put development of new devices or technologies for our client. So just, just, to, just to clarify, so you sort of, you started out really focusing on you know, the single, you know, single problem. You were, you were building a, you know, building kind of a, a product solution around that. And then that evolved into this engineering consulting firm uh, or got it, got it. So what, so that's, that's interesting. So you didn't necessarily set out to build this business, but you realized that the problems you were working on were were bigger or had more applications perhaps than kind of what you were initially looking at? Yeah, you know, in, um, in the priority of the market in Iran changed so fast based on the 
uh, what government put as priority every year. And uh, as an engineering firm or as, a, as an expert, when you get in touch with the industry and we go there, they start uh, telling you that we have a, another problem with our device and this is more important for us. Can you help us with solving this problem? So gradually they sort of led us into that direction that you're engineering, you have a good team. And I had a, I was working with uh, European companies back then and um, I had a very big extended team that were expert in bringing technologies and bonded up to solve problem in different part of the industry, process-related uh, problem. So that sort of led us to evolve to that kind of uh, engineering firm. We sort of been an external R&D arm for companies in different industry, pharma industry, food industry, chemical manufacturing industry, uh, because some of them, they didn't afford to have an R&D in-house to help them with diagnosing the problem of they were experiencing during their process or with, uh, with any particular device that they had or develop a new product for uh, the new material that they wanted to produce or for a new application that they had in hand. We really became successful among a top engineering firm in Iran, and we start uh, working in the region, like in Iraq, in um, Dubai, with different companies, and uh, providing our services in the region. And as a successful women entrepreneur, I've been recognized as a successful women entrepreneur in Iran. I never thought that I'm going to leave Iran because I was enjoying working there and I found my footstep and I was growing the company. But then my daughter grew up and I started seeing that she's experiencing the same discrimination. At that time, I, I knew about discrimination and women's rights and all of that. So I educated myself uh, through traveling to Europe and being exposed to all of this information. And I really didn't want her to go through what I've been through. And I wanted her to fight the good fight. So I started exploring to see how we can live somewhere else, specifically U.S., because everybody would like to come to the U.S. Back, it was three and a half years ago, Dave, and it was during uh, Trump time, so travel ban and all of that issue it took us like nine, ten months to get cleared for the visa to visit U.S. Wow, I mean, I know it was it was crazy times, and uh, and it was it was it was in some ways so for for a country that I think is you know big picture is such a friendly, welcoming place for the entire world. It really was a a tough time then, and so it, I'm. I'm glad you stuck with it. I can't believe it took that long just to just to come for you know one visit. Yeah, and then we came here for a visit, not with the intention to stay, just a visit to explore, to see possibilities. But one thing led to another uh, from uh, Iran economy that was spiraling drastically because severe sanctions and also the challenges of traveling back to Iran and getting another visa and coming back here, and also COVID all together sort of pushed me to make a decision to stay and start from scratch, as there was no way for me to get access to my resources, again, because of the sanctions. Wow. And, and that was that was right. That was here in, in Los Angeles, because I know there's been, you know, there's such a strong... Uh 
you know, strong uh, Iranian community here in LA, you know, going back to the, you know, whatever that was, the late, late seventies, early eighties and sort of the, um, you know, huge, you know, huge transition of, of individuals from, you know, from Iran to LA. So was that kind of the network you were plugging into? That's true. Yeah. First of all, we were in touch with UCLA and uh, UCLA uh, neurology and neuroscience department. Uh, my daughter was uh, very much into neuroscience back then, and he he got in touch with some of the professors to come and visit them to see what they are doing. So uh, UCLA was the reason that actually we came straight to LA. But uh, as, we, as you were saying here, we have a strong community of Iranians. So. I, I, when I came here, I felt that, okay, it's not that different from Tehran. Many people speak Farsi. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, at this point, your, your daughter, your daughter is kind of getting plugged into UCLA and, uh, and that sort of led to you getting plugged into UCLA as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. She, she started doing a, like a research with UCLA, the yeah, neuroscience department to see how she can start networking for her future. And then I, I was introduced to a technology development group in UCLA. And given my expertise, um, I talked to them. I said, you know, I can actually help startups with their product development and help them with their development journey. And uh, they were kind enough to introduce me to uh, talented uh, innovators that were working back then because it was COVID time. They were working on uh, diagnostic devices for COVID. Um, I have to say I met many amazing creative innovators who were working so hard to address the problem we all remember regarding timely testing. Uh, You know that testing was a big issue back then. So being part of the challenge of preparing a working prototype with this group of uh, innovators uh, to prove the concept and raise money was quite a valuable journey and experience for me because it helped me identify the pain points in product development process here as well. It was interesting. The startups that I was working with, uh, they were their technology was really interesting because uh, they could raise a good seed money, but they were suffering from the challenges uh, that they were facing uh, with product development. Product development, I, I figured that here is just like a continuous iteration. They had to pay a lot of money to a firm to help them with just building multiple iteration of a physical prototype. And they had to get involved in every step of the way to test the device give a feedback, uh, get involved in the design. And for a lean startup team with no expertise in development or uh, manufacturing a, a product, it is going to be, it was a challenge because it's consumed their time. So they didn't have a chance to work on different aspects of their info, uh, innovation and it needed a lot of money. So unfortunately, the two startups that I was working uh, with they failed both. One, because they couldn't uh, prepare their prototype in time to get to the clinical trial for, to be tested, because when the product got ready, there was no COVID patient available. And the other one, they ran out of money. 
So having that experience in mind, if you remember, I get the opportunity to work with UCLA Biodesign and you in Bioscience LA in leading an effort to launch and run TechReady Accelerator with the aim to help like uh, uh, biotech-related technology accelerate development of biotech-related technology for more diverse community. Back then, we were focusing more on COVID-related technology, but we expanded to generally to biotech-related technologies. And that uh, experience uh, helped me to see that these challenges is quite universal in between uh, biotech startups and companies in different stages. And considering I'm a very solution-oriented person, I start thinking how I can solve this issue because clearly these innovators have like a really valuable technology in hand, but they need to have a, a working prototype to show that this technology is working. And you know, investors, they don't invest easily. They want to see proof. They want to see that you're able to de-risk your technology. And it's only possible if you could put a prototype in front of them or in a way you can de-risk your technology for them. Yeah, and that's something which you know you kind of mentioned with the, the you know the, the startup earlier. I mean, you know, it's 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 way too easy for companies to run out of money before they've got a full product. And so, if you can find ways to get to something something measurable, something testable sooner, hopefully you can increase the chances of of a company like that succeeding. Exactly. And that's why software startup can succeed more, success, um, get successful more in this journey, because they can show what their software is able to do. They can demonstrate what they are doing. But for when it comes to device, it's very difficult to get to the point that give them a working prototype. So um, back then in, uh, in Iran, I used uh, Lean Six Sigma for product development. I thought that if I can redefine this method and sort of put simulation at the front of design and implement some of the essential factors like market data, regulatory pathway, and any other related data for that specific technology at the start of the journey of development, we might be able to have a more feasible path for product development. As a process engineer, chemical engineer, I am very familiar with using software and computer-based tools in design process, processes and equipment. And that's why that came to my mind. No, that's that's just re- that's really interesting, and uh, I've, I've been so excited, so excited to get to this part of uh, the conversation because I'm I'm really you know really excited about what you're what you're building now, and so you know just to take a step back, sort of you know what does uh, you know what does kind of the typical kind of hardware prototyping process look like, and you know what did you you know what did you learn back in your your engineering days, and then you know flip it over, what are things looking like when you can bring software tools like you're building into the process? No, but usually if you don't want to use software, you have to have some people start designing an equipment or the device that you want. So you explain your device device, or you have maybe a napkin drawing of your device or whatever idea that you have. You explain the application and they start designing it and build a different section of it and start 
uh, assembled together and tested to see if they, it can perform the way you want. And each of these iteration after testing, give us some knowledge and we go and modify the design and build another iteration and test it again. So this is, that's why we call product development continuous iteration. And that's really costly, especially when you're dealing with the very complex devices that has multiple different parts that need to work together to do something, to have a function. But what I thought is simulation gives us a good insight about the device. And in simulation, we can use different parts without uh, uh, purchasing them or without manufacturing them, without investing so much money. We can use those parts, define those parts virtually. In process development, the software available because uh, process equipment are limited, the number of process equipment limited. We have all of the, almost all of the process equipment, different variation of it have been simulated before and is available in the library of the software. So we can easily use different equipment and change uh, operating condition of the process to see which one works perf perfectly, with better efficiency, like what is a thermal issue in this process, where might have like some pressure issue till we get to the optimized condition and then we go to design. I thought that it is if we could, it could be possible to do the same thing for complex device, that would be great because we are going to cut through a part of the cost that we are using for continuous iteration to get to the decent design to be uh, to get to the working prototype at the end of the day. But the problem there is uh, complex device, especially when we are talking about innovative devices, they have different parts which is innovative and they're you cannot find it in the market. That's why there is no simulation exists for that, for those parts. But we have simulation tools. We have computer-based tools, very powerful one. But we have to simulate everything from scratch, from process, control, interaction between parts. And that means a, a multi-physics uh, simulation. And multi-physics simulation means a complex uh, computation. And when we get a complex device, we have complex computation. That means we need a high computational budget. And naturally, we need a long time to run this simulation for different scenarios in order to get to the point that we are happy with the performance of the software. But still, everything is happening virtually, but it's very complex. Yeah, no, this is, no, this is, this is, I mean, it's again, I, I feel like we're just, we're just scratching the surface of this, but I, I, I think, you know, I'm, you know, what I'm, what I'm kind of connecting this to is as, you know, as, as software systems have gotten more and more complex, you've got, you know, you've got developers who've built standard libraries and, you know, kind of these object oriented libraries where someone can, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel, um, you know, and, and, you know, build your own, you know, I, I remember, you know, my programming days, uh, uh, you know, sorting, right? I mean, every, every you know, basic programming class, you learn how to do the bubble sort, you learn how to do, you know, these different kinds of sorts. And, you know, obviously, nobody needs to reinvent the sort because, uh, you know, those things exist. But, you know, now we're building more and more complex things where if you need to, you know, the, the calendar picker on the iPhone or things like that, right? You know, calendar time, 
you know, how do you do, uh, you know, you know, basic routines, all those things are built into software. So when someone is building a, you know, building a new smartphone app or building a new computer app or even something on the web, they're just plugging in these standard pieces and then they're focusing on their, you know, their particular innovation. And so it sounds like what you're doing is, you know, you're basically creating a, a system that can allow for some of those those standard tools when you and I were talking before, uh, you know, motion, you know, motion sensor, uh, um, you know, gyroscope or motion sensor or things like that. Um, you know, we don't need to reinvent that, but you need to understand how will a, a, uh, you know, tool like that, how will a component like that interface with whatever you're building in your bigger system, power management, you know, heat management, things like that. So basically you will have these library of, standard uh standard components that someone can build into their virtual prototype while also building in their unique kind of uh secret sauce for their their technology is that a good way of saying it exactly that that's the that, that's our ultimate aim i'm going to just walk you through the journey uh to the point that we get there uh at the point that uh i was a start I start using this uh, computer-based tool. And when I look at the library that they have, the library is very lean, especially when it comes to medtech and biotech-related devices. There are not that many parts. Like we are talking about off-the-shelf parts that we go and buy and use it in our device. And also in, in computer world and software world, we, we should have a library you know, that we could take some of, as you mentioned, uh, parts off the shelf and use it in our simulation. But those shelf like like 80% empty. So <laughs> we should build everything from the scratch. So back then I, I start, uh, I said, okay, I need to use a simulation uh, and to see what is the effect and is it really improving the product development or not? I remember still it was during COVID time. I had a project for bioaerosol collector. Uh, the aim of this project for designing a bioaerosol collector to collect bioaerosol from the air in a room to take it to the sensor to sense it to see if there is any COVID exists in the room that we are breathing, you know, back then. So what we do as we start to simulate the whole process of collecting and the collector, and we use the data that was available to us by experiment and also the data that we could extract from the uh, literature to validate the whole design. And when we get to the uh, desired performance, we use the output and build the physical prototype. In four iteration, we had a working prototype with a decent efficiency, collecting efficiency. So I thought that that was a green light for me to push toward this direction. But still, I was worried about uh, the time and complexity of um, computation when we get to the com more complex device because bioaerosol collector wasn't that complicated. It has like a few parts. That was the time that I was introduced to data-driven reduced ordered model by one of UCLA professor who is my collaborator. And uh, he's a professor in mechanical engineering department and he walked me through this concept and we started working through this concept that's, that's where Optimus came to life. And um, we started using it in our simulation and I'm going to explain to you what exactly is that and how it can contribute to and solve the challenges that we discussed. 
and contribute to building a library for this software and make it easier for people to build their simulation in a faster way. I call it ROM, reduced ordered model, short is ROM, but we're going to call it ROM from now on. Our accurate surrogates, uh, which reduce the complexity and time of multi-physics simulation by encapsulating the behavior of the system using input-output data from the original high-fidelity model or experiment. In this definition, you can see it is a perfect match or perfect replacement for multi-physics simulation because it is a block that can mimic the behavior of a system. When we've talked about this, uh, you know, you, this is where you kind of said, you know, this is essentially a, a you know, digital twin kind of, you know, kind of solution. And that's something that so many, you know, so many technology companies and not just companies, you know, organizations are identifying, you know, how can they build digital twins of everything from, you know, a, a person to a stadium to a city. And, you know, so you're you're really building these um, you know, precise digital twins of systems that can be plugged into, you know, plugged into a, a prototyping tool so that everyone can, you know, everyone can build their solution faster. Exactly. This is actually the, uh, the very first step toward digital twin, as you mentioned. Uh, there are multiple ways to build ROM from care fitting to using deep learning techniques, depending on the complexity of that ROM. Basically, um, ROMs are blocks are that, that mimic the behavior of a system. So this is a block with a specific behavior. So when we have a very complex system that has multiple different uh, parts in it with different functions interacting with each other, we usually break down that system into subsystems with a specific functionality. And we create ROMs of each subsystem, like a piece of a puzzle with, with a specific behavior. And then we put all of these pieces of puzzles together in an arrangement that can deliver the same function that we are expecting from that complex device. And the advantage of using these ROMs is we are dealing with a less complex simulation, which the runtime is shorter and we don't need that much of computational budget. At that point, we can run different scenarios in this simulation, and we can use the data that we have. We can augment data within the boundary conditions of the function or uh, what we want that device to perform, and get that model to the point that we are happy with the output. And at that point, that output can use for physical prototyping. So when you get to the point that the simulation that you build with different blocks of ROM give you a desired divide, a desired output, exactly what you wanted to demonstrate to people about value of the technology, I can call that piece of software a virtual prototype. Because with that piece of software, you can go around and show people how your technology, what your technology can do. And that output can easily use for physical prototyping. And the physical prototype comes out from that output, doesn't need to go through continuous iteration as a conventional method. 
because that physical prototype in one or two iteration can provide, can at least show how the system is working. Sounds like a, you know, this is not just a, you know, not, not just a, a company or a technology, really a whole new approach to, to design that could have, I, I hope, some major impact on, you know, certainly companies here in LA, but, you know, companies anywhere. Um, so, you know, kind of on, on that note, you know, where, where are you and your, you know, your co-founder and kind of the, you know, in this, in this development process, sort of, you know, what, what's the state of technology? And if, uh, you know, if someone actually wants to, wants to collaborate, wants to start to use this, is it available now? Or, or kind of, when do you think it'll be available for a, uh, a hardware engineer to start using? Yeah, actually, we are working with, uh, with some corporate helping them with improving the performance of their devices. And we also work with uh, two innovators and helping them with development of the technology. One of them is uh, a very famous surgeon in UCLA uh, Medical School. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, uh, Dave, how we get to the digital twin and uh, um, from this point, because digital twin is our main goal. Uh, after we create the virtual prototype and build the physical prototype, the output of the physical prototype after testing used to inform that uh, virtual prototype to behave more closer to the behavior of the physical prototype. And this interfacing between physical prototype and virtual prototype continuously go on till the virtual prototype mimic exactly the behavior of the device itself. That's the point we call that piece of software a digital twin of the technology, which is really valuable piece of software to have. As valuable as digital twin is, it is very difficult to sustain the digital twin inside the company and keep it up to date because interfacing the digital twin with the device and communicating these two currently is very difficult. That's why in Optimus we are working alongside with helping our clients is working on a uh, tool to make this interfacing uh, simple and accessible for everyone. So you don't have to go to an expert to do, to do this interfacing. You can use our tool and interface your digital twin or virtual prototype with your uh, device. And that's really helpful to sustain and keep your digital twin up, up to date. The other value that digital twin, having a digital twin these days in the companies, specifically medical device companies to have is, uh, you know that uh, lifetime of a technology now it is pretty short. And in order to stay relevant in the market, you have to be on top of the market and you have to uh, move as fast as your customer need evolving to provide them a product which matches what they need at that point of the time. If you want to, if they want to use the conventional way of uh, product development, they are always going to stay behind because uh, the customer needs always ahead of them. And there's always some innovators that they can bring that uh, solution to the market. 
So for the big companies, it's really important to big companies, small companies to have a digital twin of their technology in-house that when they want to add a feature to their device, or if there is a problem with the device they have in the market, they could easily diagnose the problem using digital twin or add that feature to the digital twin and do risk analysis and performance analysis virtually to make sure that feature is a way to go. And then they start manufacturing it and do for prototyping and testing. So uh, that that's why having digital twin these days is really valuable. And uh, it seems that that's actually one of the threads of industry four, but I can say product development is completely behind from digitization. And now it, I think this is time that we move that way. Yeah, no, this is, this is re- really exciting. It sounds like you're definitely onto something, you know, onto something big. So what, uh, you know, what's next? And, you know, and this is really, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, your opportunity to, you know, reach out to the LA community in particular. So, uh, you know, are, are you looking for additional collaborators? Are you looking for funding? Kind of, you know, what does it take to take this to the next level and how can our community help? Yeah, actually, um, I'm so happy that I am in LA, uh, Dave, as uh, I am part of a thriving bioscience community. And um, I am really, um, I, I feel really good because I receive a great deal of help uh, with every step that I am taking, especially I would like to thank you to, you helped me a lot with networking and introduce me, me to key people to help me developing this, um, idea. Actually, we're, um, we are, um, moving toward, um, two direction. One direction is already, uh, we have a team that mostly are coming from UCLA and, uh, we are working with clients in um, helping them co-developing a new device or helping them with diagnosing a problem. We definitely would like to expand on that. Uh, currently, we didn't, we didn't raise any fund. We got projects uh, without any marketing by word of mouth, and people got interested. They saw what we did with other projects, and they came to us. The other area that I'm exploring raising money is development of this a tool that we are developing for uh, interfacing between digital twin and also uh, and, uh, and physical device. And also for the ROM library that we are building to make it easier for people to build their virtual uh, prototype without um, going through all the steps for building ROM and uh, doing simulation and running the experiment and having a good library, complete library to get to the virtual prototype as fast as possible. So this is the route that we are walking into. Got it. Got it. Now that's, uh, would, would love, and I, and I know, uh, you know, as you and I have chatted about, you know, and L- LA has got, I think, such a strong software, uh, you know, software tradition. And, you know, that's grown over the past 20 years for sure as the tech industry has grown here. We're still not a, you know, we're still not a hardware powerhouse, even though we've got med tech, as we've talked about. But, you know, also, you know, there's people developing, you know, clean tech hardware here. You've got, uh, you know, people developing tools for, you know, for agriculture, for apparel, for aerospace. We have so many really interesting hardware focused industries or, uh, 
you know, hardware supported industries here in LA that I think there's going to be just a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, companies and even entrepreneurs who maybe couldn't have gotten their company started because they didn't know, you know, they didn't have the funds, they didn't have the the ability to kind of build a full prototype from scratch. If they can start to approach this from a, a, a virtual standpoint, it gets them to that point where they can get some outside capital, they can get some outside partners and move the business forward. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what kind of what emerges from some of this. Certainly, you know, as you mentioned, this virtual prototyping is not only for biotech related um, technology, it can be used in multiple different industry. Uh, when we are having a complex device, and when we are trying to design a complex device, we definitely can go the route of simulation and put simulation at front of the device. Something that I forget, I forgot to say, uh, Dave, which is a, a plus for medical device and biotech related technologies and devices is that FDA also recognize virtual prototyping and they have an in silico um, <clears throat> trial, which is virtual trial. And uh, what they um, encourage companies with the device to do is that they, they sort of having a start running a virtual uh, clinical trial with a virtual patient cohort to be able to test the safety and efficacy of their devices. And the data coming out of that virtual clinical trial can be used that earliest step of uh, FDA submission for feasibility and preparing the early on documentation. And it's really helpful to expedite uh, their FDA submission uh, as you know, is is really painful FDA pathway. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's a great opportunity. And again, I think you know some great ways for some of our community to plug into to uh, you know what you're doing. Um, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned UCLA multiple times, uh, and you know, and, and technology development group, biodesign, other you know other parts of the organization. So clearly, UCLA has been a great kind of support and collaborator with with you in multiple contexts, kind of and, and Bioscience LA as well that you mentioned. But you know, are there other other organizations that you've been tapping into or supporting the work that you're doing here in LA? You know, LA is actually great because we have great universities here. We have UCLA, of course. We have USC. We have Caltech, and they are home of. Uh, world-renowned scientists and we have like a great intern pool that definitely I'm in touch with Bioscience LA to use them for different areas from marketing to engineering and uh, and yes I was in touch actually with um, with USC professors also um, um, I was in touch with UCI um, yeah, yeah, I'm in touch with universities because um, um, what I do in our model is using an independent contractor and uh, an expert in the area uh, that we are working on. And um, no one is better than uh, scientists and uh, professors who are expert in the area they're working at. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, we've got, uh, I feel like there's, you know, there are a few places in the country and even the world where we've got the, these amazing, uh, you know, amazing mega academic institutions and then, you know, such great other, other schools and support organizations kind of 
filling in the gaps. And so it's, it's just a great place to be, to be innovating. It's a great place to be hiring from. You mentioned, you know, interns. And I think there's just so many opportunities to, to build exciting companies here. And I, I think we're, we're absolutely going to have to have a, a part two of this conversation where we kind of see, uh, you know, how, how the technology is evolving, how your collaborations are evolving. Cause I'm really excited to hear sort of how, how this comes together. And, you know, clearly you've been super busy from, you know, helping to uh, address the, you know, COVID, uh, you know, pandemic, as you mentioned, to, to Techwity, to, you know, launching this company. And, you know, you've been your, uh, uh, helping, helping get your daughter started in her career here, which has been great as well. Um, in between all of that, uh, you know, I would love just your, the other side of Los Angeles, kind of, you know, what about LA? Uh, you know, what do you do for fun? Kind of, you know, what, what sort of, other parts of LA are you tapping into, whether it's a restaurant or a hike or just kind of how do you how do you take advantage of all that LA has to offer? Uh, before I get to that, let me add something um, to why LA is a good place to be as a company like uh, my company is that there is a lot of life science companies as uh, coming to LA and locating to LA because uh, first of all we have great hospitals and we have the most ethnically diverse population, which is great for clinical trial as well. So I point that out. Yeah, what I do is, you know, we are in LA, the the weather is great all year. And even when it's cold, it's not cold really. So I do love hiking. I do love go to the beach and try different restaurants here whenever I get a chance. But hiking and walking is really my go-to hobby. Got it. Got it. What, any any favorite uh, favorite hiking spots or maybe a secret hiking spot that you're uh, OK to let a few people uh, know about because it's so cool? Not really. Not really any uh, any secret. They're all amazing. Hiking. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. I love that. And I uh, yeah, as you said, even even when it's uh, even when it's a little bit colder, a little bit rainier, it's still amazing here, uh, especially I know we're we're recording this at a moment when, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, half of the U S feels like it's, uh, you know, stuck in, in blizzards and, uh, you know, crazy travel conditions and things. And, you know, we're just really lucky to be here in LA where it's, it's nice all the time and people want to get together. So, uh, um, well, hopefully more, more opportunities for that. And, uh, as I said, I would love, uh, uh, you know, love to help follow the progress. And in the meantime, uh, if there's ways that people should get in touch with you, do they go to the company website? Do you want them to email you? How can, you know, potential collaborators uh, reach out? That would be great if they reach out by email to me. And also uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. And um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. They can message me there and definitely I will answer. Wonderful. And we'll make sure that's, uh, that's all in the, the show notes, uh, uh, LinkedIn. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to kind of seeing how some of those things come together. I know we're working on some events for early 2023 that will hopefully kind of connect the dots around this new technology, some collaborators. So hopefully we'll, uh, people will hear this and get plugged into that. But, uh, uh, Leo, this has been great. I really, really appreciate it, especially kind of connecting in the middle of, uh, holiday season. And I just want to thank everyone for listening to the We Are LA Tech podcast. Uh, This has been such a fun conversation, uh, super technical, but hopefully those of you who made it through, you've learned something and uh, we'll find some ways to 
to help connect, um, to connect and collaborate with more amazing people in the LA Tech community, definitely check out the We Are LA Tech Facebook group at wearelatech.com slash community. That's wearelatech.com slash community. And say hello on social at We Are LA Tech on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you soon for the next episode. And uh, Layla, again, thank you so much for the time. Hi, this is Layla Mirmoman, founder at Optimus. We are doing virtual prototyping and digital twinning for complex device. I am based in West of LA, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production.